Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone who loves stories. We have three aims on this show to make you write more, to make you write better and to make you write happier. Now today's episode is me having, well it's all, yeah I mean, that goes without saying, and yes, I sit here I am saying it. Um, but more importantly, it's me chatting to poet, playwright, and all-round great guy, Inua Ellums. I I wanted to get Inua on for a while, um, but he'd sort of uh, we decided to wait until his book was almost out. Um, he's written. Well, you know, you are. We discussed this in the show, but he he's got a book coming out uh, at the time of recording uh, called "The Half God of Rainfall," which is an incredible kind of verse novel written entirely in uh, three line stanzas with in twelve in, in twelve, I guess, uh, six metric feet, so twelve beats a line. Uh, it's I mean, like I, I'm sort of like that for for some reason because I'm a poet. I've just front loaded it with the uh, with telling about the form when you know actually it's about uh, a demigod and the uh, Greek pantheon of gods plus the Nigerian pantheon of gods and basketball and um just. Well, we we we'll get into this. We we talk about it in the, you know, there's lots of big themes. Those things I've described are really the, the kind of chess pieces that are being moved round, to kind of create, the story, is really good, and I really liked it. And I think if you had told me, here is a verse novel, in because I didn't realise it was poetry until I read it, and actually I didn't notice that it was. Uh, Octavia Rima, that's the form, until I was a few pages in and then I was like, holy shit. Uh, I, I would have said that this would be an experiment that wouldn't have worked. That would be would have been my guess because it's too difficult to sustain and, you know, the tail's going to end up wagging the dog. It's really good, you guys. Like, it's not that I don't have faith in Inua as a writer. He's an incredible playwright, a, a really um, adept and uh vivid poet he's a great performer of his own work he puts on uh nights you know that's how i know him is through the poetry scene um but i can say without you know without just uh bigging it up you know I, don't get me wrong i love using this show for benign nepotism for me kind of getting on uh peers whose work i love and going, hey, this person's awesome. But actually, the main reason I wanted in you on, and, and the main reason I get quite a few people who I've sort of known from the poetry scene over the years, or people, actually lots of writers as well, is because I want an excuse to be able to sit down and ask them a bunch of impertinent questions in a way that, you know, backstage at festivals and in the green room at gigs and in this kind of weird poetry village that we have in the uk this kind of weird 
brigadoon that kind of explodes and reforms of about a hundred residents. I mean, I, I haven't been there for the past couple of years because of you know being a dad. But before that, I, I there was years of my life where I lived mostly out of a backpack, where I was living at home a lot of the time with my parents because you know my life had had kind of like collapsed slightly. Um, and I spent a lot of my time sleeping on people's floors with a backpack, with a, my, you know, a change of pants and a toothbrush in, going and doing poetry gigs around the country. And Inua was one of the first people that I met on the scene at a time when I was really scared that of it just being lonely and weird and causing me turning up to random venues in cities I'd never been in before. And not and and you know he was one of the he's one of the villagers you know he's part of that community um, of people who I encountered and then you see them at one gig you're on the same bill and then you do two gigs and you say oh hello and then you know after a while they're kind of like your they're like your poetry neighbour in a strange way you kind of turn up and you go hello and it's like it's kind of like Sesame Street you know you go and you go oh hey there's oh Luke Wrights here I mean he's it, my friend, I've known him for a while, so he's a bad example. But um, he, <laughs> he 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 would be like the he would be like the mayor anyway. But you know, like you start seeing all these different people around, and it becomes like your village. And and there, I passed in you know some difficult times in my life. I passed many many joyful weeks and months. There was a time in two thousand and nine. I I had a like five month period where I only where I, I only had two weekends that I was that I slept in my own bed and every other weekend from like the end of May to the beginning of September I was at a festival and because those festivals often started on the Wednesday or at least the Thursday that means for, for like a five month period I spent 50% of my life living in a tent going to all these different festivals and like Inua was one of those people along with uh Loads of other poets that I could name, but it would sound like I was name dropping or just listing random obscure names that you've never heard of. What I'm saying is it was a really... And Inu has then gone on to do great things and branch out. He's taken... He's, he's, he's you know, he he's taken place to Edinburgh, the Edinburgh uh, Fringe Festival. He's just doing awesome stuff. And we talk about his plays. We talk about... Uh, uh his work and i just you know i just feel like this is one of my favorite episodes that i've recorded because it just feels per it's just a joy to speak to anyone i like i think about 10 years ago um he stayed around my house when i was running a poetry night in norwich and him and a poet called mc angel who's another person i'm incredibly fond of and who I also admire as an artist um stayed up half the night talking about poetry and lyrics and I remember the next day I was knackered because I just get got to sat with I just got to sit with a couple of my fellow artists and just nerd out about poems and words and hip-hop and all these things that we just all loved and had very different perspectives on but loved and it's been 10 years <laughs> since I had that conversation and I, I think ever since then I've been wanting to uh, do a sequel and this was my chance 
and in you has got some great stories he's got some great insights he's just like okay spill tell me some stuff i want to learn and i and i learn a bunch of stuff and like listening back to this i was like oh my god that was it's just i sound like i'm being schmaltzy in hollywood you know i sat i know i sound like it but gosh darn it i am never ever ever gonna let myself be too cool to admit one i'm starstruck and amazed by when i see meet people in my field or just outside it who are either famous or have written stories or done shit that i think is amazing i'm never going to be too cool to go oh my god fucking hell this is cool and i'm never going to be sort of too practiced to admit that i love my peers i love the people i get to hang out with i love my fellow artists they're the people who inspire me they're my biggest influences they're the people that make me keep going you know these are the people that you know they're my they're you know i was going to say my family and i'm stopping myself because i feel like that's a little they might feel that's slightly proprietary they might be like hey, hang on they're just these are people that i really care about and so you know that's sincere um however you know you want to take that i will put a link in the show notes to for you to get Inua's book the half god of rainfall it's out in the uk from uh, fourth estate it comes it's actually a really beautiful little hardback as well the cover's amazing um so if you want if you listen today and you go that doesn't sounds cool um you can uh, go and i think they'd be pre-ordering it at this stage depending on when you're listening also depending on when you're listening um the half got a rainfall is going to be a play uh in it's being put on it in london and birmingham um i'll put ticket links there if i can find them uh and uh, you can see dates that it's going to be on um i think it's going to be on in a few in a couple of weeks um today is the this is going out on the 18th of march so i think at the beginning of april it's going out but you know if you live nearby and you listen to this and you decide you'd like to go see it then uh, you have that option thank you to everybody who has been pre-ordering um the ice house which is coming out on the 2nd of May. My second novel in the uh, in the honours series. I um I've been having, you know, as you as you know, if you've been listening to this, you know, my moods have been going up and down. I'm okay, right? I'm I'm fine I'm fine. I'll get through this. Depression and anxiety depression for me is just kind of like hemorrhoids of the soul. It's like not a pleasant experience to go through but i am not in any danger you don't need to worry about me the the worst i'm going to be doing is sort of sitting in front of cbb's in my underpants eating fruit and fiber uh that's that's you know that's as dark as it gets for tim clare i'm afraid that i'm an incredibly boring person i I don't my my biggest vice is a cup of coffee in the morning um and occasionally i I drink iron brew when i'm playing D &D. um that that's about it for me so don't you know it's a few people have like emailed and gone hey tim i've you know i've been hearing hearing the dark shit that your content has uh have been largely comprised of for the past few weeks are you okay um i'm sad but um i'm safe so just don't thank you for your concern um if there was any way that i can leverage that concern into book sales of course i would like to exploit that if you are worried about worried about me um by all means um 
governed by the book, I'm fine. But if it makes you feel, if there's a little voice inside you that says, but what if he's not? Go buy the book. Buy a couple. That That is a big antidepressant for me. No, I'm, I don't want to make light of uh, mental health issues, especially because I know so many of you have got in touch to say it's usual for you because you've been through similar things. I don't want to now um, be seen to be, especially because I've noticed from also from messages and tweets and stuff I get from people that sometimes what I think is obvious irony uh, when I say it on this um, does not come across as such. I'm not very good at delivering irony and I often sound like I'm serious, which is why I did a series of tweets last week about the London Book Fair suggesting that people should go and surprise agents and editors whilst they were on the toilet because this was a good time to catch them when their guard was down and they would uh, respect your chutzpah while you pitched your book at them. Um, I, 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 <laughs> I sent that out assuming that people would see that that was a joke of that was supposed to be bad advice. Um, no, no, quite a few people <laughs> got in touch to say thank you. Oh gosh, well I'm at the London Book Fair, I'll give it a go. And, um, and then a couple of agents got in touch with me to tell me off and say that was bad advice and I forgot that um, sometimes you know sometimes I'm just a twat (laughs) so don't take everything I say as gospel friends Um, but there's links to uh, the the ice house in the show notes um, links for you to buy it from Mr B's Emporium if you want to get it from there if they get up to 100 pre-sales I think they're tickling 70 at the moment if they get to 100 then not only will I sign every book that they uh, have on pre-order I'm going to do that anyway if they get to 100 I'm going to write a little bit of extra material and put that in with the book um, aside from that you can get it from Wordery you can get it on uh, Amazon, I don't think Amazon's the best place to get it, aside from any ethical issues, I think that's one of the most expensive places to get it. Word we do free delivery in a cheaper, you can get it from Forbidden Planet. I'll put all these links in the show notes. But um, if you want to support the podcast, and if you want to support me, that is the best way to do it. And if you've already um, pre-ordered, or if you don't want to pre-order, but you'd like to do something to support, or if you can't afford to pre-order... Um, then you know some free things you can do share the links share your enthusiasm for the book talk about it share the cover um because the cover looks sexy uh share the synopsis uh it's a fantasy book it's got adventure it's pretty dark it's kind of about old age and love and loss and dying and the end of the world and madness and it's also just got some cool shit in it and some fights and a a world that I don't think exists out there in fantasy yet I'm really proud of it and when I've been reading it back I've been going ah this is the thing I needed it to be this is what I wanted it to be and I'm happy with that so yeah that's that okay I think we're good to go. I don't think I need to say anything more to you. It's just hanging out with you, enjoying it. Um, here is my chat with uh, playwright, poet and wordsmith, Inua Ellums. So Inua, like, there's so many ways. Like, I, because I, we've known each other for a while, I'm really, really excited that I finally got you on the show to t- talk about your work in general. But, like, now we've got, like, an excuse with um, your book coming out. Yeah. I'm, like... Because I've seen, I've sort of followed your career for such, 
feels like a long time. It's not it has actually been a been... long time. Well, <laughs> but... I don't know, it's 13 years. Well, no, 2003. So 16, 17, 18. No, my math is were... 16 years. That's how long this game has been being played. And I think it's probably around the same time that I first came across your work as well. Yeah, like I, you were, I think you were one of the sort of earliest performance poets that I saw yeah. on stage. But let's like, bef- before we sort of turn into like <laughs> two, two old men around the <laughs> Domino's table. Men, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I, I want to start to like, to get some other people on the bus before we take off. Um, right. What's the first, what's one of the first stories you can remember telling? I remember, t- ooh was probably a lie when I was a kid to my parents and blaming something on my twin sister. Probably, um, that was probably the first story that I told. But I remember the first time my twin sister and I um, were separated in, in primary school. I threw this huge tantrum in the assembly hall in the middle of everyone, teachers, kids. I did not care. I was, you know, screaming. My twin sister just walked off. She did not care that she was leaving me. So I think I remember going home. And I told my mom, like, you don't believe what Miriam did to me. She didn't stand by her boy. Like, what's that about? So <laughs> I think probably recounting that tale of being abandoned, but... But my blood, you know, um, was probably like the first story I, I told. But before that, I'd probably lied about something. Yeah. A story, a story of those kind of like early betrayals, you know, they feel like it at the time can be mm. quite, do, can, can feel, how do you think you, how, how did you feel about that at, at, at the time? Because I think that's like incredibly noble of you to sort of, to, 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 to make a process. Um, I, th- I just didn't want to lose my sister, really. And that's what it felt. I mean, she was like the next, she was a class next door. But for me, she might have, might as well have crossed the ocean. But you know what? I still have abandonment issues till this day. I mean, it's been, you know, compounded by being an immigrant and leaving everyone that I've loved two or three times in my life, you know. But maybe it started then with my twin sister. Oh my God, I'm going to call her up. I say, it's all your fault. Like, <laughs> it's, it's all your, all this angst I write about. It started with you. <laughs> Um, um, but yeah, I think, I think, yeah, it definitely was a big thing for me when I was a kid. Um, and, um, and I still, I still think about it. Yeah. What, what, what are the, what were the stories that you heard from other people that, uh, kept you company at that time and started making sense of the world for you? Um, my, I have this poem in one of my books called, um, 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 swallow twice and it's about watching my father entertain his friends by telling stories and they tell stories about drinking about you know just crazy things they did in their youth my father you know reminiscing about his wayward time in brazil when he was young and traveling through and enjoying the you know the carnival i remember not having the clue what they were talking about but really wanting to know everything and i think that's that's probably the first time i saw just words entertain grown men, grown adults. And it, it seemed like magic to me, you know, and I wanted to be among them. I wanted to be in the room. I wanted to understand 
what was happening. There were no flashing lights. There were no cartoon characters doing backflips. Batman was nowhere in sight. It was just talking and laughing. There's something really intoxicating about... um, It's almost kind of like a kind of mystery religion when you see adults enjoying something or laughing something or sharing something that you're missing like a piece to mm. um and 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 you feel like there's like an inner circle and i if i could learn the secrets of this then i'll be a, i might be able to do that too i mm. might be able to make a load of people a load of grown-ups like laugh and or be spellbound yeah exactly exactly that exactly that you know it's like you think you as if you figure out the the cheat code for the world if you if you're able to tap into that yeah can you can you think about when cuz like you know obviously like you say like we all tell stories as soon as we learn how to lie my my daughter's two and she hasn't i don't think she's quite gone through the developmental stage of knowing how to say anything but the truth at the moment i don't think she's yeah. maybe she's inherently honest but i suspect she's just <laughs> waiting for her brain to work out you can say words that didn't happen yeah. to deliberately deceive somebody. Mm. Um, when was the first time that you like wrote a story or used words for, for want of a better word, art? Um, probably. I remember when I was here in Holland, when I was schooling in London, in Holland Park, and I was set this homework and we had to write a story or adapt a story or something. And I remember watching The Man in the Iron Mask by Leonardo DiCaprio. And my English homework was to write a short story. So I sort of wrote wrote like an internal monologue for him or something like a prequel or or his attempt to escape and falling into into the ocean, having jumped out of, you know, the prison he was, he was held in and something like that, something like that. Either way, I remember my English teacher just marveling that I had done this, that this kid, I think I was maybe two months in London from Nigeria, um, had come and had created something. I remember she reading it to the whole class and getting a standing ovation from my student, from my classmates. Freaking hell! Yeah, a standing oh Jesus! Yeah. And you know, I was how was like twelve, thirteen at the time. So oh my god, I was I that made me Optimus Prime. I was like, yeah, you all cannot touch me right now. I'm not, you know. <laughs> but I think that was that was the first time I like I made something. I translated something. I dazzled my own English teacher with words, and and she felt compelled enough to read it to the entire class yeah that was probably the first time like i figured out there was another alchemy beneath language beneath words and i could i might be able to dance with it yeah because a lot of writers i've spoken to they do talk about these kind of like key moments where somebody sort of wittingly or not um becomes like a a mentor figure Mm. or somebody basically gives them permission says something that says you can you can do this Mm. you can be part of this you've got something or just supports them in some way and it sounds like um 
she in that moment was that for you yeah like i forget her name now it wasn't miss jennings because i think that was an, another teacher but she she was awesome she she was a chain smoker like like a, she was this hard bitten um I think she'd, she'd gone through some trauma in her life. Um, and I say that simply because of how intense she was at all times. Dedicated teacher, but really hard. And I remember once we had a small riot in my class. My, my class was the worst. I think most people think their class were the worst, but we were, we were small demons. We were, yeah. we were pandemonium. We were that circle of hell. And, um, we had a small riot in our English class. We're throwing paper darts at each other, spit wobs, the whole thing. And my English teacher just went silent. Um, and she lit a cigarette in the class, smoked it, walked out of the class, walked out of the hallway, walked out of the front gates and never came back to school. And that will always haunt me. That was this woman who changed my life. She, without you, are you serious? I'm serious. Wow. Completely serious. This woman who changed my life, I was part of what destroyed her. <laughs> you know? Like, like, <laughs> oh my God. I will always remember that. Like, yeah, she was, she was legendary to me. She remained, I'm, I'm talking. What talking a way her. to quit your job yeah. as well. That's like she was facing the firing squad. I'm telling you, she was like, I've had enough now. Cool. Fair she play to her. You know, like, I hope she's done all right. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> so having like burnt, having like essentially like killed your sensei in a battle. <laughs> yes. In um, a battle. <laughs> like what was, what was the, what was the, like your next, what was the next point for you um, in how did, how did things develop from you for, for, for there in terms of your writing? Um, I went to Dublin, I schooled there for three years and uh, my basketball coach was my first poetry teacher. Like he taught English, but he really taught me poetry, like compression, um, metaphor, simile, assonant, you know, all of those things, not just like this, these are the, basics but this is why it works this is what makes language magical this is like he taught me Seamus Heaney um Shakespeare Keats Bishop Boland and and because he was also my basketball coach um we, we he 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 could rule our minds and our body just by you know demanding drills so we got to push ourselves to the limits under his guidance, under his stewardship. And at the same time, most of the guys that I played basketball with were the guys I listened to hip hop with and, and did my English and poetry homeworks with. So in this, in this three years, I got to learn so much about the musicality of language, the precision, the beauty of, of, the, of, of language, the limitless of it, whilst also playing basketball. And it was a sort of 360 education on what it, on, on so many things at the same time. So his name is Mr. Nolan. And again, he accelerated my life. He, he changed what um, the English teacher in, in London had taught me. She, she taught me the excitement of it. He taught me the bones of it, the, 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 the nitty gritty of it whilst playing basketball as well. So Mr. Nolan, um, yeah, that was the, the, the second person, I think, who put the wind in my sails to use that terrible cliche. But yeah, <laughs> he's now um, headmaster of the school, which, I, which just makes me smile every time I think about it. That's awesome. And what a, I think I've never heard anyone talk about a 
you know, one of these mentor figures who was sort of doing something else at the same time. And I think that seems like such... And of course, like, I don't want to jump ahead, but like looking at... There's like key bits of your work, including um, The Half God of Rainfall, which we will get to, where I'm like, oh... I'm like, oh shit! <laughs> All right, <laughs> yeah. wow! Oh, that's that's your kind of oeuvre, right? Like, wow! I, I, that's immediately unlocking whole parts of mm. um, uh, your your work for me. But like, to have someone who is that still like important to you? Are you someone who like has ideas and and gets like the rhythm of things when you're out running or mm. playing basketball? Or how important is kind of movement? And of course, because you're, I know you like produce stuff for theatre and you perform your own mm-hmm. work. How important is movement uh, to you when it comes to composing uh, pieces um, and words? I think, I think it's for me. Language has to move and it has to make the body to want to move. Um, and maybe that comes from listening to hip hop, where you know that is the end goal. However, we, you know, whichever way you look at it, but um, for me reading and the digestion and the intake of literature is is has always been a kinetic thing you know i mean which is to say i love to sit down and read but i like to feel like like i'm being moved somewhere i remember someone reading an early an early critique of my work and um and and i think the reviewer said all of inwas poems have drama in it like shit happens you know and and I'm, I'm always I'm always trying to. They have to be big stakes. They have to be something, and even within the nuance, even within the subtlety, there's like this isn't a poem about you know watching birds fly, which can be an incredible dramatic thing. But what I mean is, I always want something to. There is a great swing in 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 things that I that I make, in things that I'm interested in, and how I enjoy literature the most. Yeah, you've you've mentioned um, hip hop a couple of times. Can you what? Um, influences from I know like influences is like you might like really Mm. like something without thinking it's necessarily like fed into your work but what were you listening to at the time who have your big influences from there been oh my god I was listening to like terrible (laughs) hip-hop or like the classic stuff but you know everything from like you know you know the classic eighties, late eighties, nineties hip hop from Tupac to Snoop Dogg to Dr. Dre to House of Pain to um, Dead Presidents to D Twelve Amendment Eminem's whole click um, to Fifty Cent. You know, and but then to a- the Talib Kweli's, the Common Senses. You know, the Pharaoh Munches. Um, all of all of the the Soulquarians click. Those who sort of experimented with. With um, what's his name? With D'Angelo and Erica Badu, the Roots, all of those guys are who I kind of fell in love with, with 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 lyricism through. Yeah, and but it's like it is a it's a really really fertile time uh, mm. that period. You're like listening to people. Yeah, you know, I'm going to get into trouble for saying this, but it feels like you're listening to. I know it's sort of different paradigms, but you're listening to people kind of level up and like push the boundaries of what they can do in terms of lyrics in terms of how they're what they're fitting in on and off the beat pocket um yeah. in terms of multisyllabic rhymes like you know from late 80s to sort of mid 90s it's it's quite like a it's quite like a paradigm shift right yeah yeah like that that's the thing <laughs> 
I, I just love listening to most Steph and and just uh, while well, Yasin Bey and and just to think about how how much freedom he had over any beat. And, you know, he has this motto, motto which is to stay fluid in, even in staccato. And that is him to a T. So just being able to dance and bend time to your will whilst telling the story about, you know, Brooklyn or just walking down the street or mathematics. And then, then you know, oh, I don't know. He, he, he did things to my brain that I'm still trying to unpick. You know, you're completely right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had to. Um, we just sent the uh, galley proofs off to be printed of the Ice House, and awesome. Um, uh, we got quoted. I had we got quoted six hundred quid for me to quote eleven words of uh, Mosdef, and I was like, I can't what? believe. I was like, come on, guys, I just <laughs> get. Let me have. Let me have this one reference. So I was like, I can't, that's too rich for my blood. But I, mm. no, I totally know what you mean. And, and that ability to not sound like the tail's wagging the dog, which actually, you know, like I, it took me a, a while, maybe because I'm slow, but to like notice that um, the Half God of Rainfall was written in this kind of like Terza Rima style, just yeah. because, <laughs> you know, like when I hear like Prince and he does a rhyme and he's like, I'm going to take you to a, party on the riviere that's the west side in case you care and you always feel like a little bit like the rhymes he's having to make up the next rhyme to get himself out of a fix um you can hear the rhyme scheme but i think what's really what's true about like your writing is that feeling of like the the rhyme and the meter and the form are kind of abstracted so they're giving you they're kind of like the lines on the basketball court that are giving you the restrictions to do some like a really amazing stuff. Yeah. But they never feel like they're like mutating or mutilating the content. The content, yeah. I remember when I first started writing The, the Half God of Rainfall, um, the intention or the sense of the line ended with the rhyme. And, and it just sounded so forced. And it sounded so predictable for a listening audience. And it sounded like there was always a gear shift. You could feel it, you could hear it. And I didn't want that to be the case. Um, and I, this is one of the things when people come to see the play adaptation, um, I'm hoping some of them haven't bought the script yet, haven't bought the, you know, the, the book yet. So they just, they just enjoy the storytelling. Then only when they get the book, they're like, fuck. Did he rhyme every other line in 12 <laughs> syllables? Like, what? I just I just want to, like, this is like a really conceited pleasure of mine. <laughs> like, it may never happen, but I I want, I want, I want someone's head to cave in when they realize that. <laughs> and, and, you know, after just seeing the play and seeing how fluid it is, they're like, wow, that's nuts. I've done that for 84 pages or an hour and a half, however long the play takes. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I... I mean, I reading it in the book, and I, like I say, I'm I may not be the um, most shrewd kind of like uh, 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 analyst of of uh, verse, but it actually took me because it's not kind of de dum de dum de dum yeah wallop de dum de dum de dum bing um, for people who are listening who are sort of maybe a bit terza yeah. is it is it like is it terza rima am I right in in saying yeah, that? Yes, it's a terza so, rima. Yeah, which is twelve syllables well in stanza the terza, the terza refers to the rhyme scheme which is three line verses three line rhymes terza rima 
right? Um, and um, the hexametrical re refers to how many syllable, or how many, um, I think feet is the word, are in each line. So each line is a hexametrical so each line is hexametrical, so 12 syllables, and there's a rima three-line internal rhyme scheme. Sorry, so, sorry, internal rhyme scheme, but rhyme scheme. A, B, um, how would how this go again? This always confuses me. Here we go. A, B, A, B, C, B, C, B, yeah. Yeah. C, D, C, D, E, D, etc. Yeah. Essentially, the, <laughs> the second line of the preceding verse rhymes with the first and third line of the subsequent verse and the three lines in each verse. So yes. people people are some you know some people are going to be listening to this and going like why why? why on earth would you set yourself that restriction before you answer that um can you just give like a little pricey about what the half god of rainfall god is of rainfall. about so people have got some context for what we're talking about. Okay. The half god of rainfall um this new book of mine um is oh my god I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to talk about this book because of how many things it's about um sure well, what's, what giving... about it what about it is important to you then when you you're thinking about the story and the story you're trying to tell okay what what what, what what's that for you and we can work on the ele elevator pitch later yeah okay it's about it's about masculinity um it is about the hero's journey it is a mixing of cultures from West African culture to European culture through the lens of myth, specifically Greek mythology and Nigerian mythology. But I think primarily it is about, um, it's about a mother, a mother's relationship with her son. Um, yeah. Oh my God. But you know, you, you read the book, so you know how much that excludes. I don't know. Um, yeah, boy. sure. I mean, like a lot, because a lot of it's about, as we've already kind of like touched on, a lot of that is also using the, uh, using the motif I, is, is immediately makes, yeah. I'm kind of like distancing myself. A lot of it's about basketball, right? Yeah. Well, um, bas basketball is a language to discuss various things. Um, so I think a lot of it definitely is about basketball. Like, like that's, that's what, you know, the, the the I'd say he's the secondary protagonist. Um, that's what he does. He's a basketball player, but basketball is the lens with which to discuss um, black masculinity, um, the mythic in contemporary America. Um, is the lens is the lens to discuss. Um, heroes those the the heroic um within humanity the heroic spirit and the failings of that you know so as much as it's definitely about basketball it it isn't also if that makes sense like this is, yeah this, yeah basketball would be a weird sort of like word to use as like go what's the themes of your work exactly basketball but it's like what's your work about in the same way i suppose that really like the the uh, like war isn't really a theme in greek tragedy it's yeah. war is this like sort of just macro conflict that allows a load of characters to go through human kind of like foibles right and yes and 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 and, and, and pits people together and kind of like crunches them up together and i feel like yeah, basketball exactly ends basketball up using yeah yeah basketball feels like 
it feels like a theater of kind of war and glory yeah. and community and all those different things actually that helps me clarify this so in in classic greek myth war is the mechanism in my myth basketball is the mechanism so um because yeah. you'd said like it's a bit about um black masculinity and i know yeah. before this you did you were really interested in like barbershops is that fair as like as, as yeah. this kind of like one forum yeah um, i was wondering if you could just touch on that a little bit before we move into kind of like the basketball court as the as as, yeah. the, as the other one because you did you did quite a lot of research for um yeah previous i wrote moment. this um play which is ruined ruin, oh, wow did that freudian slip there i was gonna say ruling but i said ruined wow <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow I wrote this epic play called Barbershop Chronicles, um, which is um, one of the many things it discusses is black masculinity, but through the lens of barbershops, which are sort of cultural and safe havens for men, for black men, specifically men of African descent, wishing to escape scrutiny um, or just wanting safe spaces in order to let their guard down and be as loud and as boisterous and as noisy and sort of um, playfully aggressive as we <laughs> we seem to be um, when we're around each other. And but the, the and the play is set a day in the life of seven different barbershops, six of them on the African continent. Um, one of them is in London, in Peckham specifically, and um, is a network of barbers and clients who know each other but don't know that they know each other. And they have this sort of conversations that begin in London and sort of a sister conversation is had in a barbershop in Ghana where another topic is introduced and that happens in the subsequent scene in London. Sort of like a relay race which shifts between the continent and back, back and forth. And it's an exploration of various things from politics to um, um, interpersonal relationships to gender politics to racial politics to the legacy of African leaders and um, people like Robert Mugabe to Nelson Mandela to Good Luck Jonathan and um, it's also a lot about what it means to be a man in the 21st century um, an African man specifically um, so yeah yeah so that uh, and so my so I guess my that's because those I, I I'm just what I'm trying to avoid is like the rather sort of facile comparison of my going oh these seem these seem like uh, these seem like uh, themes that you're then continuing into your next work because of course mm. like anything but like they're fairly fundamental themes as well so it's like you know what it means to to be a man in the 21st century is like, you know, that could go into all sorts of stuff. All sorts of things, yeah. But what you, but here you specifically have like, even though you've got the like entire Greek pantheon, the kind of like Nigerian pantheon, actually it feels like this is, this focus of this story is actually, is is like actually quite small or it kind of sharpens to a point of two key characters. Yeah. Could you talk, could you talk a bit about um, the kind of mother son relationship in this uh um i i play basketball i'm terrible at it i'm 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 completely useless at it um and of the guys i play with i am the runt of the group and they know this and i know so that like there's no there's no myth here (laughs) like there there was no legend i'm i'm terrible at it but i always wondered what would happen if i had been brilliant 
And what if what makes me brilliant was innate, was born into me, was born with me? And that was what set off the idea of a Nigerian basketball player whose whose father was a was a god, thereby making him a demigod. And um and I wondered about the power dormant sleeping within such a character, what happens when it's awakened, and how his mother might then try to protect protect the kid from the eyes of the world, from the unwanted attention, how she might try to harness it, to teach him to harness it, and the various ways it could play out. Um, and, you know, the story, the, the relationship between them starts in a tiny grassy basketball pitch in Nigeria, in the west, in the western part of the country, where there's a mother who's fearful of a son and wants to protect him. And then it shifts to him attempting to become the master of himself and the master of his powers. And then in the in the in the third act um, of the play, of the book, of the story, um, is where shit really hits the fan. And she has to let go of of her inhibitions and do what's what she must. Um, to protect him, to avenge him, um, to ensure his legacy carries on through her. I don't, I'm, again, I'm trying not to give so much of the story away, but I think that is a summation of their relationship. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you know when kind of Greek gods are getting involved that not yeah. everybody is going to get out of this right. happy. happy <laughs> yeah. Yes. But yeah. Um, I, the first thing I want, like, I need to get this out of the way that I fucking love this book so much and i just say just so i'm not being sort of like weirdly sort of like just sycophancy isn't just like leaking out of me for the rest of the the rest (laughs) of our chat but like i was reading it and i was like just sometimes i was going oh my i was like what i was like what have you done like it was really it's just got that kind of like precision it's it's like you managed to combine. I just well, I'll, I'll get I'll get into an actual specific question rather than just raving about it. <laughs> but like the way you sort of set up the right at the beginning, the way you set up the actual that basketball court, mm. um, and it sort of just glows with this sort of precise, small majesty and wonder. Mm. And I just wondered, how did you start thinking about? making this kind of again it's like a you said like barbacop shops uh are like a a safe space yeah. and this feels like if not like a safe space then almost like a kind of magic circle or a holy yeah. arena and i wondered if you could talk to me a bit about how you started what influences you were drawing on to kind of make this basketball court feel like the center of the universe at times um because from playing the game it 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 has always felt like that to me, even though I'm terrible at it. There's something about watching five basketball players, which is different from, from a you know football pitch, which is just massive, who are so in sync with each other. They know where they are. They they can breathe together. They you know they run drills where even with your eyes closed, you know where your boy's gonna be. You know, and it's always feel felt like you were plugged into something you were um you know they talk about the five the five um strands of hip-hop you're like the five fingers in a hand you're all together and it's always 
does, I've always bought into the magic of it. Even when my team is dysfunctional and there's some guy who just hugs the ball for too much, I've always wanted to tap into the ultimate potential of us. And poetry is nothing if not tapping into the ultimate potential of language. And so and maybe this is why both things were working when I was a kid in Dublin and learning both of these things. It's, it's always been completely the potential for complete beauty and complete synergy with man and, and, the, and the machine of the body, the spirit and all of those things. So when, when he came, and also maybe it's because I'm terrible at it, I've always looked at these the incredible basketballers, the history of them as, as being magicians and the basketball court was their stage and all of them did things I could never hope to do. But, but but again, like watching my father tell stories when I was a kid, feeling like if I could break the code of this, I'll, I'll, I'll figure out another way of being, another deeper connection to humanity, to myself. So I approached writing with all of that stuff, like, who oh, this this is a haven right now. This is this is sacred. Um, and maybe thinking a little bit about the history of basketball, how um, it started off, you know, in, in the projects in America, which was um, um, inhabited mostly by Jewish kids from the Second World War who lived there. And um, they were poor, many of them. They couldn't afford to partake into big American sports like, you know, baseball, American football. But they had these small courts and they, the, the game just developed there. You know, they found a way of being, you know, of, of, of fulfilling the space, of filling the space, of, of reigniting what they had lost fleeing Germany. Um, then after a while, when they moved out of the projects, the black kids moved into those places and took on that relay race, took on that baton of trying to figure out ways to, to connect with one another. So I've, I've always approached and I always think about basketball like that. It sounds also the way when you talk about it as well, it seems like the you talked about synergy and kind of mm -hmm. connecting these five fingers of a hand. And it's going back to that, you know, being split up from your sister in the, the class mm. again and kind of like looking for those points of connection with humanity when you are part of, you know, you are part of something larger, which I guess is the like basis of, most spiritual traditions right is, mm. is becoming is joining with something bigger than oneself yeah 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 completely um and that's also something i was i was trying to critique with regards to contemporary religion and how we view it and um um and what has happened that keeps happening to destroy um, um, the space for faith in our lives, you know? Um, and I've always, my, my natural instincts, even towards poetry, is to try, as, as much as I worship it and, and love it, to try and demystify it and make it as democratic as possible. And I think the same thing about, about religion and belief. And, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to play with Nigerian mythology and the Ifa religion, but also Greek ones, to just unpick it. Um, and one of the, you know, in the early days of the play was when I began to dip into Zeus's relationship with his children, with his wives, with his lovers, with his, and that's when I realized also we'd put the Greek myths and Zeus particularly on such a pedestal. We hadn't really 
you know, looked at the legacy and look at what, what he actually did and and attempt to chip to chip away at that monolith, that stone, um, also gave rise to the story. Because that's a uh, that's I'm so glad you've said that because this is the next question I was going to ask. In that these kind of like spaces that we've been talking about, mm. one of the things is for you know for all their kind of like uh, febrile kind of like uh, almost kind of mythic this kind of focus and this communing. Um, there are also spaces that uh, women don't have access to. Yeah. And at the same time, there are other stories going on in the background. And there are stories that perhaps, you know, in this case, you, you know, uh, Demi, your main character, doesn't necessarily know about. Um, and there are hidden mm. traumas and there are things that women are doing to to keep the whole show on the road. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this kind of other history and this other um, thing that's happening, especially when you talk about, you know, the myths and um, mm. who, who we kind of like venerate in those myths and yeah. who, and whose wounds or experiences are seen as just kind of uh, the word I'm looking for is collateral damage. Yeah. Um, you, you are so on the money with that. I, I, I remember when I realized, when I discovered the, the real story behind Medusa, how she was this beautiful maiden, just just woman, just chilling, doing her own thing. And then um, I think it was Poseidon had a crush on her. And Athena didn't like that. I think it was Athena. Okay, I'm getting my goddesses mixed up. But one of the Greek goddesses, one of Poseidon's lovers. You don't need to worry. In your, I'm, I'm lower middle class. So I have no okay. knowledge of the Greek myths whatsoever. Okay. I didn't go to public school. So you can okay. tell me anything and I'll accept it. It will you become my it. new canon. <laughs> Either way, so Athena is pissed off that Poseidon or one of the one of the main gods like, has this crush on Medusa. And rather than... And then, um, and rather than, you know, telling off her husband, the god, for like lusting after um, um, a mortal, she captures Medusa, then turns her into the scaly skinned, snake headed um, gorgon or something like that. So, so this was a, this was an innocent woman who just happened to be attractive and the gods just rained on her, rained on an entire parade. And there's just tons of things like that that just happen in, in the Greek myths, even even in if, even in Yoruba um, Nigerian mythology, and this re reoccurring thing of of um, even Helen of Troy, same thing. She did nothing wrong, you know. The, anyway, just lots of little things like that irked me, and um, and these were just ancient stories which we never really critique and, and look look at through the lens of contemporary gender politics, contemporary strides towards equality and, and feminism and conversations that we're having with each other right now. But if we're still teaching these stories like this and I'm not picking them and thinking, okay, that was wrong there. Um, story by story, men make other men. You know, we just keep on making the same mistakes. And I wanted to write into that. And even in, in the foundation of Nigeria, in, in how the constitution, which was left over from um, colonization, how it heralded and talked about women and, and the laws that were passed, etc. We, we, we're still living in the echoes of those times. And um, and I, I, I wanted to try and explore that with, with, with this with this story to, to chip at all of those monoliths, those things that just exist, which you don't really question 
and and to look at it through the lens of 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 yeah of 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 contemporary gender politics again like i have three sisters and my twin sister was one of the most powerful women that i know and i just realized the we don't see enough of these stories and another this another of these stories that 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 put men on pedestals for doing things that anyone could why why must why must it be men what and and if 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 the shoe was a, if if we changed that what would be the repercussions what what, what would have what would affect the story or or you know and all of those things were just were just boiling in my head around the time that I began to tweak and to look at this story um and I don't know I'm still learning so much about ways of talking about this and I, I remember lots of people have told me in Walker you have barbershop chronicles now um you have you have 12 men on stage you're in a position of power if you write a play people will put it on where where is our play and initially I thought I, I I don't think I can tell stories like that because I'd rather create space for women to tell stories about power and their relationship with it. But um, again, I don't want to I don't want to spoil this book. My 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 way of trying to to tackle all of this was was to create a character and and try and surprise the audience by pushing that character to the, to the limit and seeing what gives across those fault lines of gender politics of of mythological ancient stories we've been telling each other what what if what if yeah there's some man i genuinely i i love that thing story by story men make other men mm. that is that is incredibly incredibly profound i think mm. and uh it it sort of throws throws it back on us to be sort of it's incumbent upon us to be mindful of yeah the kind of stories we tell and the the caveats we put with them you know in terms of what this you know because it's very easy in all these stories that we talk about to kind of slip some stuff under the table if we're not mm. paying attention and we're not attention. got our wits about us exactly you are so on the money. I, have you heard of the concept of frigging? You probably have. Um, in in comics originally. In comic, uh, yes, yes, I have. But if you could explain it for people who haven't. Okay, so frigging is where typically there'd be a superhero, and part of his motivation in order to overcome evil or something would be something horrible have you know been done to um, his wife or his girlfriend or his mother or something like that. But specifically, the term comes from a Green Lantern story where one of his enemies killed his girlfriend and stuck her body in his fridge. So he opened it and there it was. And this, I don't know, drove him to overcome this, you know. And, and the trope is about women being sacrificed to to um, for, for a male protagonist's um, I don't know, moral impetus through something impossible or something, you know. And um, and in the very first um, version of this play, um, I think I was guilty of that when I was just thinking about the idea, okay, if this is what Zeus represents, um, this is what Demi needs to do. And and I think maybe after the first draft, I thought, oh my God, I think I just... I think I just fridged Madupe. I can't, I can't <laughs> do that. This, that is so wrong because, you know, it doesn't represent... Again, it's because I'd read all of those comics. 
I'd read all of those things. This, this men, story by story, men make other men. Those stories had made me until I realized, like you said, something had just subtly slipped, you know, um, slipped in because I thought this is how stories should be. And then that's very quickly, yeah. That's ex- I was going to say, that's exactly it. It's not that you, you, you think, it's not that you kind of like, this is what pe- I think people, I think it's such a good point because it's what people have to understand is it's not that someone sits down consciously and goes, mm. a woman should die to make men more interesting. Yeah. You just kind of intuitively feel out the story and go, oh, I feel like I should kill off one of these female characters for this. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and you, it's never, oh, it's never conscious, but it has been... It's we've kind of been enculturated over all these yeah. different stories to make it such of a norm that you just don't even you feel like it was spontaneous. You know, you feel like it's something that flows out of you as an artist yeah. and it's what the story demanded. But actually so much of the time that kind of like instinct is actually built up off of habit and expectation yeah. and cultural norms. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I definitely fell into that same thinking when I when I wrote the very first when I finished the first draft of the story, but then various things happened in my life, um, and various things happened in the world, which forced me to interrogate what I had written and why I had written it, and then the story changed and changed so much. There were seven drafts of this thing <laughs> before the final one was sent to print, and each time it got stronger and clearer. Um, and more surprising, but also more inevitable. Like, of course, that needs to happen. Of course, this would happen. That's awesome. It's like, I love that idea that it gets more inevitable, that you like, as you change it, it's like you felt something kind of like a, like a part lock into place. And you went, yeah. oh, that's it. That, oh, and like, it's like you're like, br- you're like excavating it and slowly its true shape started to reveal itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you talk, well, then the kind of like, the bit about this book that I think is... Well, I'd just love you to reflect on it because I said we were going to come back to this. Yeah. You've written this in this kind of hexameter, this Terza Rima, right? Mm-hmm. And and yeah. that is not... Um, most people would hear that and you're like setting yourself an extra yeah. difficult challenge. You could have written it in blank verse. You could have written it in prose. You could have written it as mm. dialogue. You could have just had it as a story. What made you choose this form and can you talk about some of the things that it allowed you to do that you wouldn't have been able to otherwise and some of the challenges well i wanted to tap into the language and the history of of you know greek epic stories of of things like ulysses things like um um, um, you know, just the great stories, things like Homer's Odyssey, and he wrote in he wrote in this form. Um, um, and secondly, I just thought it'd be difficult as fuck. <laughs> oh my god, this is this is frightening. And what can you sustain this? This is impossible. Like no fuck, like no. And then um, I'd read Derek Walker. He wrote a book called Omeros where he did the same thing in a similar form. But um, and I just thought this this is gonna this is gonna do your head in Inwa, but just just try. What's what's the worst that could happen? You take it out of the form and you and you just you know, so it seemed impossible. Now initially, I think most of the time this form um is is written in ten syllable lines, and I tried to do so with five feet ten syllable lines, but it just seemed 
too restrictive and it seemed like the rhyme schemes or the rhyming would be too pressured and I didn't want that. And it, elongating it to 12 syllables meant that I could play more. I could, I could really let the rhythm set into the storytelling. I could, um, I could really flirt with prose and poetry. I could tighten things up when I need to double down and eat, really include various internal rhyme schemes within the, you know, the established rhyme scheme. And, and therefore I could draw from hip hop. Um, I could just go into just sublime prose. It, it, it gave me wings, the, 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 the construction, the construct, the restriction, sorry, um, really, really, it, it gave me room to play in a, in a sort of odd way. Um, and once I began to, to really settle into it, I was thinking in 12 syllable lines and like when, when it comes towards, oh, I can't talk about it yet. When it gets yeah. to the end and there's the battle, I think I wrote that in one sitting and because I was in my room, I was getting up and physicalizing the battle and literally it just came. I don't think I struggled for the rhymes at all because, because everything was just, oh, I got so excited when I was writing. It was utter joy in my room. Just thinking about ah. describing all of that. Oh my God. It was, it was so much fun. There were, there were times where I felt like the story was writing me. I just happened to be holding the laptop at the time like it was oh it was it was elemental sorry <laughs> you guys haven't read the book like you don't understand anyway yeah no, it was... it's, but that, i get that totally it's like when you have got a form yeah and it's like the first couple of pages where you're starting the boulder up the hill are like mm. murder but yeah it's the same and it's the same with writing just like a first person voice novel where the character doesn't sort of isn't just writing in kind of standard English or whatever, where mm. they've got their own voice, their own idiom. Like to start with, it's often quite difficult, but once you get to a certain point, it's like your brain just like grows a little node yeah. that is exclusively <laughs> devoted to like writing in this voice. And then it just, and then it starts spewing out stuff when you don't want it to, when you're in the yeah. shower, when you're trying to think <laughs> of something, someone's trying to tell you something like directions on the phone. And, and actually you've suddenly just got, there's just more data coming out for the book and you're like, Oh wait. Uh. So I totally get that. It's like, if yeah. I listen to, you know, like two or three hours of hip hop a day, like I can't like my brain will just not stop spewing. Yeah. <laughs> just bars like rhyming off someone trying to have a conversation with me or be taking their like end word and using that for the next four yeah. bars. And I'm like, I, but it is like a, when you've got somewhere for that to go, it's a huge joy. And like, why wouldn't you enjoy this? Because like, you've got like, it's like, it is kind of like a Avengers assemble. You kind of get, you get everyone in, mm. you pull from all over the, the world and you get this great, great kind of like set pieces. And it feels to me like having that form a little bit, I'm just reminded of kind of like, uh, like Walt Whitman and kind of like hit how mm. he was kind of, the the like the rhythms of the King James Bible mm -hmm. kind of like seeps in so much into his work, and I feel like in the same way you've got once you've got this this rhythm, this hexameter, and this rhyme scheme, and the rhymes are often you know you you make the rhymes are often quite light. They're kind mm -hmm. of they're they're kind of sometimes like B rhymes, but it gives the story a voice and a pace and an urgency and a kind of power 
that make that feels entirely its own. Mm. Yeah, thank you. That's those that's exactly what I was I was going for, you know. And initially so the the crazy thing is this this is how cheeky I am. Um the kiln, well, the, at the time they were called the Tricycle Theater, but they commissioned a play, and I all I went to that I went to them the story like this is what I what I like to do and said so, okay, here's here's the commission write it, but as soon as I finished, you know maybe the second or third third draft I thought, if this is a play script, no one will read it. They'll only read it if they buy it after seeing the play, and that's it. But the story has so much. It just touches so much of the world in so many different ways. I need I need to do something else with it. Like the, like you said, the, the form was 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 really challenging, but I felt like it really worked, and I wanted others to come to it. Those who hated poetry, who hated the Greek mythology, who knew nothing about Yoruba and West African slash Nigerian mythology, who knew nothing of this world. I wanted them to to just to, to battle to to enjoy the script. So I began the long bat you know, the long journey of trying to get someone to publish this. And most of the poetry publishers I went to didn't felt like they couldn't put this out. They didn't know what to do until Fourth Estate and HarperCollins came along and they just loved it. Like, yeah, this 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 will work as a book. Just just put it out there. And I wanted, you know, she would make it a little bit longer you know, and I thought this is this is as strong as the story needs to be. Anything else is just faff. You know, it's just it's just bloating, and it needs it doesn't need that. Um, and you're you're completely right. She, my my editor, um, Helen Garners Williams, my publisher. Sorry, um, my editor was Martha Spracklin, who was a joy to work with. But um, Helen just loved the story, and she just got it, and thought, okay. Let's let's put this out there and see. So I'm 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 excited to see what yeah people make of it and the very the various inroads that happen to the story, and, and and what it's done with it. So anyway, so after selling it um um as a book, um it's gonna be a play as well. Um and I think it also really make a fascinating video game. <laughs> yeah, it really really would. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my mind's just exploding with different with yeah. what the various levels would be. So it's going to be it's going to be on um in uh Birmingham and London, did I imagine that? Yes, or? that's correct. It opens um imminently. Yeah, at the end of this month, I think. Cool. So I I I um and I'll put links to um I'll put a link to to buy the book but also uh links if people want to get tickets if there's anyone uh yes, who's ne- near do. Birmingham or London then um you can go and uh book those yeah uh, in, Inua, thank you uh, anyway can I um the sort of final thing I wanted to ask is basically yeah. to sort of step is to kind of like ruthlessly strip mine your years of hard work kind of like learning your craft mm. um in a way that um you know you so that maybe we can pass something down to people who are listening who uh want to you know have got ideas uh for stuff that they feel they they're not allowed to write that are kind of too weird too big they don't fit mm. in with what mainstream books they feel like look like maybe they want to write something you know using verse like you have um or maybe they're just struggling to get words down on the page and just start. I was wondering if there's anything that you've learned along the years um, that has helped you with your writing that might help others. Um, 
the, the main thing is, is to not wait for permission. Um, and so I, sometimes I even fall at taking that advice because I feel like I need to read something else out there to know that it's okay to write the thing that I do and just end up wasting time. Um, but the main thing is it's, it's okay to be yourself. And by that, I mean, it's okay to write what you want to write, even if it doesn't exist anymore. There are no existing roadmaps into your own brain. You can construct the ground on which you're walking as you're walking it. And it's perfectly fine. And if you get to the end of the journey and you think, okay, I shouldn't have walked that road, then just <laughs> throw it away <laughs> and start again. It's, 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 it's really, it's so simple a thing to say, but it's so profound to just begin the journey and, you know, choose and build the countries as you're going, set the rules. And, and if, if they're not working for you, just throw them out of the window. You know, it's, 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 I, I wish someone had, had told, well, I guess, did anyone, no, no one told me that. So my journey to start to writing really started out because of my crazy immigration background where I couldn't go to university. I couldn't work because of my immigration um, status at the time. It was illegal for me to, to work. Therefore, I had time on my hands and I had no access to higher education. So I just started doing things because there was no one to teach me or teach me not to. Um, and I just started. I just started. I just put it in first gear and just see what happened. happened. Um, um, which meant that um, I didn't... I didn't I didn't know that there was a way of doing things. I didn't know not to do it. I had no choice but to. Um, but I think the same exists for anyone who's starting to write. You know, just just start. Just start. I mean, and maybe that's just too wanky or, or too simple a piece of advice to give. But it's, 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 it's the only thing that is... Um, has been indelibly true for me without any complications that you know just just start and and um and if you make mistakes start again you know inua thank you so much i really appreciate your uh giving your time and your insight and your feedback on this on this fantastic book. And I realise it sounds like cheesy when I say it like that. It sounds like yeah. something someone would say to end an interview. Like yeah. no, one en no one ends an interview going, well, thanks very much, Inua. This has yeah. been, you know, it's been a bit of a disappointment. Uh, I was expecting more. Um, yeah. Try the Half God of Rainfall. It's not my cup of tea. You might like it. <laughs> I, I mean, like, I'm being... I'm being genuine. Uh, I, I think I'm going to spend the rest of the day. My brain's going to be buzzing, sort of processing all the things you said. It's just been amazing to hear about your work. And I love this book. And I think people are just going to dig it because it just doesn't taste quite like anything that you've read recently. <laughs> and you're just going to be like, ah, and it's like frigging cool. Like, that's the thing that I think that this will get like loads of praise for like, being a great artistic and literary accomplishment i think it will get mm -hmm. a great uh praise for its kind of i uh its sort of sophisticatedness of its ideological uh the way it treats ideological issues but i just mm. think also it's really cool there's gods <laughs> fighting there's basketball like it's awesome and i i i think you know Let's not let's not forget that coolness is a uh, it's just it's, it's just a wicked thing, story. Yeah. It's just badass. 
Um, thanks anyway. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks. And everybody listening, um, I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week of writing.